All right, and welcome back to Hattrick Sports Talk, second episode of the week. This is how we kind of do things, at least for the next few months or so. We'll actually, you know, we'll continue this. But as always, Cole uh, Hinkle is joining me for the second show of the week, or I guess the weekend. How are you doing, man? I'm doing great. All right, so today we have something fun. We're bringing back something that actually got us a lot of viewership a few months ago. Uh, we're doing the rewatchables again, but we are doing basketball. We're doing the 2011 NBA Finals Mavs versus Heat Game 2. This was probably the best game of the series. This rewatchable segment is, of course, um, originated by our one of our favorite podcasts here, uh, The Ringer and Bill Simmons. So want to get that out of the way. Of course, they originated this idea, not us. We are just taking the idea and putting our own little spin on it. So here we go. Uh, first, let's... let's uh, Push the rewind machine a little bit back before this game because ESPN tonight, as we're recording this, we're recording this around four o'clock, so they're a couple hours away from debuting this, but they're doing a backstory, which is their documentary series on the decision. Uh, LeBron James, huge decision where he's just, you know, at the Boys and Girls Club with a reporter doing an hour long interview, and then at the end says, I'm going to South Beach and going to the Miami Heat. So let's go back to that moment first. What was your thoughts in terms of how that decision was done, that whole process? Let's start there first as we first begin talking about the Miami Heat before uh, we get to the game itself. Yeah, so for me, I, I thought the setup was a little bit weird just because I thought LeBron was going to stay. But it's funny that we mentioned this first because I was actually just watching that uh, D Wade documentary on ESPN right before we, we came on air here. And D Wade even said he had talked to LeBron a little bit before he made, you know, the final decision. And uh, he, he thought it was pretty much sealed that LeBron was going back to Cleveland. And so he didn't, he didn't really think much of it after they got Bosch. He was like, okay, I'm, it's good. We got Bosch, you know, and then we'll move forward from there. But then he even found out later that they were airing this special on ESPN uh, hour-long special where LeBron was going to make his decision and it even threw D Wade off a little bit he's like well wait did he change his mind or I thought I thought he was already you know pretty much had made his mind up from what he had told Dwayne Wade because they'd been friends you know but um, yeah it was a little bit of a weird setup I think everyone was expecting LeBron to stay uh, obviously uh, he changed his mind and made a decision that I think overall actually did benefit him. I think it was it was huge for LeBron, like he has said in the past, to be able to go to Miami and kind of uh, immerse himself in a winning culture, you know, where he can learn from guys that have won before, be around guys like Pat Riley, Dwayne Wade, you know, Eric Spolster, guys that really know how to win. So um, I, I wouldn't say it was the most um, – enjoyable thing for me because I always wanted LeBron to stay in Cleveland but I think overall for LeBron in his career it was it was the better thing for him to do right I, I think hindsight is always twenty twenty with this especially I mean he did go back to Cleveland uh, a few years later but I mean the decision is always one of the weirdest things for me and that's kind of why I'm I'm interested in the special tonight because there there's something of a mystique with LeBron obviously MJ has a much deeper mystique of course we've seen that with the last dance but I first off I love these Miami Heat teams like I love the 2012 2013 team the 2011 team I have a bunch of gripes with or I guess the 2010 team in this case but it 
But again, yeah, it was it was the best thing for his career in hindsight. And in fact, I think it changed the culture of the NBA just to make it even more of a player's league after that moment. Of course, Kevin Durant going to the Warriors being another example. But speak more on that piece as well. Yeah, I think I think that's a good point you bring up. Um, I think when we had MJ kind of do his thing, we, we dove into a little bit more uh, uh, sponsorship and kind of – embracing more of kind of a cultural but I think LeBron took it one step further in the aspect like you said where he's making it more of almost an AAU type feel where you know you can kind of play with your friends and bring your friends together to play and make it more of an enjoyable experience where we hear throughout all sports you know a lot of these guys feel that the owners and stuff control them and you know, it's a business at the end of the day, and they're just a piece to the puzzle that they don't really get to control. Where I think LeBron made it more of um, where the players have a little bit more of the control, and the players can kind of dictate what they're going to do, where they're going to go, who they're going to play with type of thing. Um, now, I, I'll kind of go on the record and say I don't know if that's a great thing because I think it, it can – sort of damage the rest of the league. I mean, we've seen the last couple of years, the bottom half of the league is really diluted, you know, with, with these players kind of coming together. Um, that's a topic f- for a different discussion, you know, um, but it also does beg the question, you know, is it better to kind of have one star on each team rather than, you know, teaming up I understand it's more fun for these guys makes it more enjoyable for even guys like you and me to watch you know it's fun to have three superstars on the team but it really does dilute some of the talent some of the standings of the league I think that's something where you're looking at us who are diehard NBA fans and pretty much watch every game and and have this sort of attitude of like one star on each team but I also think there there's par for the course of the league the league was because this heat team was hated in such a way and even the Warriors were hated in such a way, ratings-wise, intrigue-wise. Yeah, during the regular season, I mean, let's be honest. Not a lot of people, besides us who are hardcore fans, watch the NBA in October when the season begins, right? And definitely there was a lot less intrigue, even for me, the past few years to sit down and watch, I don't know, the third, fourth, fifth week of the season with the Warriors being as dominant as they were, even in that 73-win season. But I wonder if we're at a spot now in 2020 where having these two stars still creates this intrigue and fun. It creates some type of balance where it's fun for the casuals and it's fun for the hardcores to just watch the game. If it was one star, I think it would be a lot different, but I think the two star thing, the balance, and that's part of what's so interesting is we had this era of the super teams and the three, four superstars on one team, whatever. And then we got to a point where like, okay, you know what? It was fun while it lasted, but now let's – now for some reason these players with everyone in France is like, all right, we can balance the league out a little bit. I think Kawhi probably was a big reason why because uh, he just didn't want to go build another big three. He wanted to compete with LeBron, not be with LeBron. It, it seemed pretty obvious with him going to the Clippers, but that seemed to be the case the last few, few years. Yeah. Um, one thing I do want to ask you, though, I mean – like I kind of touched on before, we, we've seen this with MJ kind of before where he's kind of, you know, furthering along this kind of globalization of the game. I will say that I think LeBron doing this, like you said, it brings more 
it brings more global viewership and U.S. viewership just because of the fact that we have such a dominant team like this when, when these guys get together. Now, do you – because this is probably the first time that I can recall anyway where we've really had like kind of a free agency like like kind of boom where we're like paying real hard attention to where a guy's going to go. Usually it's, you know, bottom line on ESPN or whatever, you know. But this is the first time where we have like a special for a guy to see where he's going to go. Do you think this kind of created more of that globalization trend for the NBA? Or was it because to me, it, at first it was MJ kind of made it U.S. You know, I mean, he, I mean, he dipped, MJ he didn't make it global. He, yeah, no, he dipped his like toe in the pool of the globalization. But I think this really like kind of took it to that next level. I'll, I'll be curious to get your thoughts on what do you think made the bigger impact globally? Well, globally, I think this is one of the biggest things that for a lot of people makes Michael Jordan the greatest of all time. This, it's not the stats. It's not the six for six. And obviously, I think there's a fair argument to be made that it's not six for six because of what was it, 95, right? When they, when they lost and MJ came back from baseball. But aside from all that other stuff, there, I mean, you look at Barcelona, right? The dream team that alone boosted the league. But if you look just even how the last dance portrayed it, but just in general, when you look at MJ, there is something to be said for how he domestic or not just domestically, but internationally boosted the league, right? Like, and how the years after when MJ retired, it was a much different league. Like there's, I think he did the globalization thing. I think the only, the biggest thing for LeBron is the summer months because the difference in terms of the free agency piece with the decision and all that, it's the fact that LeBron made the NBA much more of a 365 sport than like, then, Oh, it's a global thing because of LeBron. Yes. LeBron is big globally, but MJ had a much bigger impact globally. When you look at both of their careers, what LeBron did is make it a 365 sport like the NFL. The NFL is 365. I'm sorry, it is. But the NBA is much more global because of MJ and a 365 because of LeBron. Because in the summer months now, when you got, obviously not this year, but, you know, June, July, or particularly July and August, free agency is just huge. I mean, ever since 2010, free agency has gained so much more importance. So it's made the sport a year-long thing instead of just something we talk about for – December to June and we're done. Yeah, I, that's a good point. I'm just, what I'm trying to say is not necessarily LeBron making the decision, making the game global, but kind of making this super team. This was kind of the first super team, but I think this super team made more viewers globally because people want to tune into these super teams not necessarily the fact that I'm just talking about LeBron versus MJ because obviously I think MJ did a better job of you know like you said the dream team and all that there's there's more globalization starting there I'm saying as far as progressing that I think making a super team not necessarily LeBron just himself but the creation of these super teams kind of made it so you know way more people in China tune in to see these super teams. You have people flying across the country. Not that they didn't for MJ, but I'm just saying I think it it really pushed it to a new level. When I, this- I, I think you might be right on that, the new level thing. I also feel like there were super teams in the past. Like Boston had their super team with, you know, Rondo, Garnett, and, you know, all those guys, right? 
I mean, I, I think that it was there before, but it was never thought about as like, oh my God, there's three superstars on one team. Like Boston, when that happened, was anyone freaking out? No. Well, right? I, I don't know that you can put, you know, Ray Allen in the same conversation that you can put Dwayne Wade. Or right. you can put Paul Pierce in the same discussion as LeBron. I mean, it, right. it's, it's that next level kind of. Right. But I'm just saying in terms of we didn't like, obviously they're not in the same level, but they were still like a, a super team in the sense that you had multiple stars on one team for a good period. And of course they won a, won a title. Right. But I will, I will say the difference though. I think mainly with that is there was trades to kind of right. put that Boston team together where this was guys just calling each other up and saying, let's, let's team up together. and let's get it. Yeah. And, and I think that was, I think that the decision and what followed those, you know, three, four years, yes, the intrigue grew globally, but it was partially due honestly to the hatred of the Miami heat than anything else. It was yeah, this, that, like, that's what I mean. super there's, teams. There's more hatred it's the love-hate. You're either going to love them or you're going to hate them. It's the same thing we talk about with the Yankees. But you're going to watch it. That's the difference. Yeah. You're going to yeah. watch it compared it's to – the same thing we talk about with the Yankees and stuff. People tune in just to see them lose, like like yeah. people did with Golden State. Like people I, – I agree totally. I think people want to see dynasties lose, and I think this was the first team in a that I can really say that People tuned in to watch them lose. Now, you can say people hated that Boston team or people hated MJ, but I don't think it was to the, de- the degree of this team. Right, and, and don't, I think the Boston dynasty is one of the – or excuse me, not the Boston dynasty, the Bulls dynasty with MJ is one of the few where it just felt beloved. Yeah, It just felt like it was like – it was one of these – and that's part of the LeBron-MJ discussion that no one really speaks on, a huge reason why – MJ kind of wins the discussions from people's minds is sort of like, oh, that that dynasty was everyone. actually everyone, almost everyone loved it. Yeah, people I'm sure hated it, particularly Utah. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, but it's just like they they were obviously parts of the country that didn't like it, but and and that's understandable, of course. But I think that that was almost universally beloved compared to this team, where it was almost universally hatred. It was just Miami versus everybody. It had yeah. that D- Detroit versus everybody kind of feel when Detroit right. was going against those Chicago Bulls teams. Now, now let's talk about that 2010-2011 Heat team because I remember that year somewhat vividly in the sense that they were – they just felt unbalanced. Like, it's not like it was dysfunctional. It was just, like, unbalanced and weird. That whole year – felt uncomfortable at best. And I personally feel like no matter who they played in the finals, because by the way, I didn't pick them to make the finals that first year. I thought they were either going to lose in the second round, I think to Boston or something like that. I really did not think they would make it that far because they just didn't feel, it didn't feel like they had enough chemistry. It just didn't feel like it clicked the first year. And I said that no matter who they played, if they made the finals, in this case, were the Mavericks, they were going to lose anyway. Because yeah. they just didn't have the chemistry there at all. Do you feel the same way as I do? Yeah, I think that's also – obviously, that's, I think that's the first thing that comes to mind when you think of these super teams. It's a lot of egos and a lot of talent and a lot of guys that are used to having the ball in their hands, not all of a sudden not having as much time on the ball. And I think that's just something that just takes time. You know, people talk about chemistry, but I, I think it's really undervalued in – 
today's sort of NBA. You know, it, it does take time to be able to play with guys. It does take time for people to be able to gel and, you know, understand where each other's going to be on the court, you know, different at different times of the game or who's going to take the last shot, especially, I think, defensively. You know, I think that's that's the big thing defensively. You have to be able to know when to rotate, you know, mismatches, stuff like that. You have to be able to have time with these guys to understand where to be on the court offensively, defensively, all that kind of thing. That's why I think um, re-watching this game, to me, Miami was actually pretty efficient defensively. They, yeah. they were, like, really good in the, in this game. And for most of this series, I think they had a few spells where they kind of got lazy. But for me, most of this year leading up to this finals, they didn't look sound defensively, but they kind of turned it on towards the end of the year, towards the end of the finals even, which was pretty surprising to me because when you look at this team, you think Bosch is kind of a stretch for not really a great defensive piece. You know, LeBron's still young. The desire to maybe play defense. Obviously, LeBron's a good defensive player, but... Not the same as he was at that time. Yeah, and then Dwayne Wade was never really known as a defensive player. So, to me, watching this game especially, the defense really kind of shocked me. You know, and and, and this is one of the weirdest things, comparing these two sort of dynasties that we had over the past decade of that Warriors team when KD came on it felt like it clicked right away and this team because it was almost the first time it ever happened they just didn't really click and I and yeah I think defensively they were much better obviously in the fourth quarter with the 22 run they got absolutely trampled at the end of this game game two but defensively they were they were solid for most of most of that game but I also felt weirded out watching the game like, I've been going back and watching a lot of these old, you know, Miami Heat games, whatever, and, you know, these old 2010 games. I even went back and watched uh, game six of the Jazz Bulls uh, with uh, that, that last shot by Michael Jordan. But the game feels weird to me watching it because I'm so – we're so used now to just everyone shooting threes. And I'm sitting there going, what is this lineup? Like, why is Bosch – like, why is Joel Anthony playing – at center like why why is Bosch at center only in the last three minutes of the game and then why did that and it's so funny how that changed like like and then we go to like 2013 and Bosch playing center every game yeah like it feel it was so strange to me watching this 2010 2011 team because I'm like this is like before they started figuring out like we don't need a guy like Joel Anthony to just be a blocker yeah I think this is kind of that funky period in between small ball and, you know, obviously like the early 2000s where we had a lot of big men in the game. This is kind of that area where coaches are starting to figure it out, you know, how to play small ball lineup and how to, you know, adjust accordingly. But they really don't don't want to compromise too much because you still had some some decent bigs in the league at this time. And I think the reason Joel Anthony's in there is because you have Tyson Chandler on the floor who's known for blocking shots and rebounding. And I don't know that Bosch could hold up physically defensively and still be productive offensively. So you kind of, you want to limit those chances where Bosch is really, you know, having to stress a lot on defense, trying to box out Tyson Chandler or whatever, you know, so that way he can still be productive on the offensive end. It, it was, just, it just, 
feels strange because then I feel like this Miami Heat team in particular, this dynasty in particular, like changed the way we look at the game because in the way that they just decided to do small ball towards the end, like 2011, 2013, they, they tried to say like, all right, we need, let's, let's just have Bosch play center. But yeah, I think the compromising piece is really interesting, especially looking at a guy like Tyson Chandler, but let's go to this Mavs team. This Mavs team is also bizarrely weird. Uh, Brian Cardinal is called what the custodian. Why did they put that in the broadcast? I mean, we'll get to the broadcast a little bit later, but that's a fun little tidbit of the broadcast. But this team is just strange. Yeah. It just doesn't. I mean, yeah, it's, it feels like almost a bunch of guys, like basically at the end of their prime and Jason Kidd, Chandler, maybe you can even put Nowitzki there. But I mean, Nowitzki still had a bunch of great years after this. But this team had, this is probably one of the only few one star teams, one star teams that actually won a title. I think so. I think this is probably the one team you can point out and say there there was literally one guy who had to kind of shoulder the load. And Nowitzki, I think finally after that uh, 2006 upset, you know, where they were up uh, 2-0 in the finals and they ended up losing to the Miami Heat with Shaquille O'Neal, I think Nowitzki finally kind of learned, you know, he's not going to have very many opportunities and he – in this series especially, he really decided, okay, if we're going to lose, it's going to be all on me. Where I think in the past years, he's he's relied on the other guys. Not that the other guys can't, you know, carry some load, but this is, like you said, I think this is kind of like the Island of Misfit Toys. Like, people had given up on Jason Kidd. He's a little bit older. Um, Jason Terry was thought to just be, you know, a three-point shooting six-man. Sean Marion with that broken shot, you know, not many people, this is towards the end of his career too. Um, So, I mean, you have Deshaun Stevenson, like you said, you got a bunch of veterans coming off the bench that, you know, you're not really sure of. Um, But I think the big thing, going back to a point you made earlier, um, I think this is the first two teams where, like you said, we start to see more of that small ball. And I think it's kind of interesting because you start to see the, the, evolution of the three-point shot you start to see a lot more three-point shooters spaced out on the floor on both of these teams you know outside of LeBron on Miami and outside of I mean Nowitzki is still a three-point shooter but outside of Nowitzki playing in the post a lot of these guys are out on the three-point line you saw Mike Bibby hit a lot of threes okay so the Mike Bibby thing pissed me off because (laughs) the first two quarters the guy's just shanking them yeah yeah he starts making them later but the first couple quarters, he's just shooting them. It's like, baby, slow down. Like, how many times have we talked about guys like, I mean, obviously James Harden and Mike Bibby are, are way different in levels. But how many times have you guys talk about Harden, guys like Westbrook, for example, the two Rockets, like the guys who just shoot to shoot, basically. You, you And it's like, there's why? One thing I've learned in playing and coaching and being around basketball, you're never going to tell a shooter they can't shoot. There's never going to be a shot that a real pure shooter says I, they just think they're going to shoot themselves out of it. It's just one of those things that you just can't, you can't ever tell a shooter that they're not going to make the shot because they think it's pure coming off every time. But I think the biggest thing is you, you needed guys like Bibby and Mario Chalmers and, you know, these guys later on in the game, you needed them to shoot because I think that's what space the floor and the other the spacing point wanted, wasn't there too. Huh? 
the spacing wasn't there too. Sorry to interrupt, but the spacing didn't feel there at all. It felt very tight and congested, like the whole game. And that's another thing that was weird. A little clunky, but I think you needed those pieces. If you didn't have those three-point shooters on on the floor at all, I feel like it really would have been bad. Because I think LeBron and Bosh, at this point in their careers, were a little bit tight. And D-Wade, to add to that, that's another point I really wanted to make in this game, is I saw D-Wade in the post a lot in this game. Like, a lot more than we see guards in the post in today's NBA, which was weird to look back on but I mean that was kind of D-Wade's MO before you know before it was a thing was he was mainly the guard who played in the post so I think having those three that all wanted to be like you said kind of congested in that area you needed one or two guys to stay out and I think that's kind of what like separated Dallas is they had a little bit more knockdown shooting on the outsides to surround one or two guys in the post where I feel like everyone on Miami was trying to drive the ball. Mm -hmm. And so with this Mavs team, what like impressed you watching the game from the Mavs perspective? Because of course we're talking about the heat, but the Mavs obviously did end up winning this game. What else impressed you about how they played? Um, I mean, essentially just, just the resilience that this team showed, you know, where were they down 16 or something with yeah. six minutes left? Yeah. I mean, most people, you know, probably folded up, fold up shop right there and kind of, you know, say it is, it is what it is. And then to me, that's the bigger thing is you go down. Oh, two, you're, you're probably, you're looking at a long road back, you know? So mm-hmm. for this team to fight back, you know, and like I said before, I think this was Nowitzki especially down the stretch saying this is going to be on me. And he, he really made some huge plays, obviously the last play, but I think the three that tied, I think it was to tie the game uh, with, or no, it put him up three um, with like 25 seconds left. Yeah. That to me was, was like the signature moment for Dirk to be able to show like, you know, I'm, I'm here and I'm ready to kind of take over where in years past it, it seemed a little bit, uh, passive to me where he, he this year he finally took the step and then obviously they have a defensive lapse and Mario Chalmers ties it up with a three with 20 sec or yeah 20 seconds left or something but then Dirk down the stretch not settling for jump shots I think that was the other big thing is he was really driving and you know being aggressive um with that last drive to the lane everyone in the whole building including Bosch obviously thought he was going to turn that or shoot that turnaround fadeaway, but he he drove to the lane and got on his left hand and made a nice layup. Um, But I think to me, that was the big thing was Dirk's aggressiveness. And then to speak on that too, I mean, Dirk himself, we, the league has always kind of thought Dirk is kind of soft. You know, he was the first kind of big, big shooter that kind of entered the NBA and was really like that stretch kind of big man. And uh, he had a rough few years entering the league just because, you know, people's expectations were through the roof for him, but we had never really seen a player like that. And so this, to me, he had actually torn the tendon in his left hand. Right. The finger. The finger was kind of – they had to, like, work – they had to, like, work with it before the game and stuff like that and kind of work on his release and stuff like that. Doris Burke talked about to open the game. Exactly. And then we saw – I don't remember if it was in this broadcast or a game game later in the series, but um, LeBron and D-Wade kind of 
uh, poking at him, saying they were making fun of him because he was like they thought he was sick or something, you know. And he he kind of just kept his cool. And this to me was finally Dirk being able to say like, you know what, I'm kind of tired of this kind of soft label that I get. I'm gonna put it all on my shoulders. Like I said, I keep saying, but I think that to me is really the biggest point to me in this game is his his resiliency and his being able to kind of push through all the other stuff to kind of show that he, he's ready for the moment. It, it, it's really interesting looking at this team too with Dirk because obviously once he won that championship, everything sort of changed for him and this team. Um, but him, him as that sort of three-point shooter and his shot is so lengthy. It's one of the weirdest shots. I mean, watching, watching that again, like in his prime basically, just shooting – the way he did, like that shot is so strange, but it works. Like the shot technique that he has is strange as well. It is. It, it's something, I mean, I obviously being a Mavs fan, I've watched documentaries on, you know, him growing up or whatever and his shooting coach, it was something that they've worked on since he was a kid, you know, just because of, like you said, the length that he has, they knew if he could get the ball up, like you said, and really get that shot up, it was going to be, nearly impossible to defend and we've seen you know guys try and rip it off a little bit and obviously when you're seven foot whatever you know it's like you said it's really hard to defend Kevin Durant uses it now you know it's just when you can get that kind of funky up high release and lift your leg a little bit keep the defender off you that's just something that's like I said nearly impossible to defend Mm mm-hmm what do you think went wrong for Miami in the last six minutes? I mean, they were up by what, as you said, like 16, 14 to 16 around there. And then that 22 run to finish the game, what went wrong for them? Not only defensively, but just offensively as well. I mean, it felt like they had complete control. LeBron was all hyped up with Dwayne Wade. Like they're thinking we got this. What happened for you? What happened here? I think that's the big thing. I think, you, like you said, they, they get a little excited, LeBron and D-Wade. To me, it's just inexperience. It's it's something when, you know, you're not used to being in that type of spot. And I think they really started to rush their offense. I think they started to get shots up a little bit quicker than they should have, started pushing the ball a little bit too much. You know, I I really would have liked them see, to slow it down, get D-Wade in the post where he was really effective in the first half. And I think that probably would have sealed the game for him. But you start rushing shots um, and shooting a little bit too much outside. I think the inexperience, like I said, I from the Mavericks standpoint, I think having a guy like Jason Kidd to kind of, you know, keep the boat steady, Dirk Nowitzki, Sean Marion, Jason Terry, guys who have been there, you know, 06 finals when they, when they lose, you know, it's just that experience that we talk about every year when these new teams get there. I think that's really undervalued in in today's NBA and all sports really is being able to understand, you know, that there's either time left or, you know, when to be able to do what kind of sets, that type of thing. I think also to me, not like I said, with the Mavericks having Jason Kidd, I think not having a, a real good steady point guard really, I think hurt this Miami heat team. I understand you know, LeBron, D-Wade are bringing the ball up. But having as a good point guard to kind of steady the ship, I think is also a, something that's really undervalued in this, this team, kind of setting. This team drafted, I believe, young Patrick Beverly. 
They did. And, and traded him. Yeah. Imagine him in this game. Yeah. Like, it's, I mean, obviously, he probably wouldn't have done as much as, let's say, maybe in 2013 if he was still on that team. But they had point guards there. They had one, and they let him go. I mean, literally, throughout that entire run, it was like they don't have a pure center that's good. And especially, they don't have a pure point guard. And, and it killed them at times. And no team was obviously willing to trade with them, like, at all. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think that's fair. Um, I just think, Mario, like you said, Mario Chalmers isn't going to really cut it for you. You know, he made, it, he made a, a few good plays in this series. Um, but obviously, playing around the other guys, you're going to get your ops. You know, you're going to get your chances when you're playing next to LeBron. Uh, Chris Bosh, D Wade, you're gonna you're gonna get your chances to kind of shine, um, but I think a a different solid player in there, you you'd have a little bit more production. That's where I think also just to touch on one more thing, uh, that this Mavericks team was kind of undervalued for. I think they had a lot of depth that not a lot of people found value in, but um, they really knew how to utilize the pieces and the guys really accepted their roles. You know, a guy like JJ Barea who's an afterthought to every other team really was effective throughout this whole series. Uh, Jason Terry, like I said, kind of an aging guy. Not many people thought much of later on. Um, Peja Stojakovic aging. Corey Brewer was a nice, solid defensive piece off the bench, energy type of guy. So I think there was a lot of depth pieces where, you know, the Mavericks could kind of pick up a few points, you know, in the second quarter when the stars are resting. Uh, let's talk about Carlisle. <laughs> Probably your, your favorite coach to talk about in the league. Ugh. Looking at him in this game, compared to what he's doing now with the Mavs, what's diff- obviously the league's changed tremendously, as we've continued to mention. But what's the difference here? Like, What's the difference with Carlisle with this team to now? And do you kind of like the sort of old Carlisle style of 2010, 2011? So, like you said, I'm not a huge Carlisle fan um, to begin with. This is where he kind of made his his money, though, as a coach, I think. Um, he implemented this kind of two-guard sets where he'd run, you know, J.J. Barea and Jason Kidd or Jason Terry and Jason Kidd, you know, whatever. Two smaller guards that both know how to handle the ball, but he likes guys that are going to be able to kind of just do whatever he tells them to do type of thing, which is why, I mean, you have talked about, you know, why Rondo didn't work in Dallas and stuff like that, which is something else. But I think he, he needs a guy who will just kind of run the way he wants it to and not improvise too much. Um, so that, that to me is where, like I said, these depth pieces, like a JJ Barea, um, really was effective on this team because Carlisle knows how to use undersized guards to a pretty good advantage if, if they kind of follow what he says. Um, speaking on the transition to Carlisle today's NBA, I think he's had to take a step back with Luca. Luca's not a traditional point guard. You know, um, he doesn't run as much two guard sets anymore. I mean, he does a little bit in, in today's NBA with the second unit. Um, because that's just what he likes to do. But he's really had to stay, take a step back with Luca because Luca's a budding star, obviously. Um, and he doesn't have as much control over the first team anymore. I think he's kind of had to let the reins off a little bit and kind of let Luca run the show a little bit, which is probably uncomfortable for him. Obviously, it's exciting for us and 
I am so glad that he didn't try and rein him in. I think this is also why Dennis Smith Jr. had really poor development. That's probably a name not a lot of people know, but he was a high draft pick by the Mavs a couple of years He's ago. He's on the Knicks now, I believe, still. Yeah. He got Knicks. traded from the Mavs and the Knicks, like, constantly, it felt like. Yeah, he, he was in that Porzingis trade. But I think that's the guy who really – his development was stunted because he wasn't allowed to kind of be a, a free-reign point guard. It's, it's really hard in Carlisle's set to kind of improvise, per se. You know, you kind of you, – you just run whatever set you're supposed to and you'll get your look. Um, but I think that works with a less talented roster. That's where I have my problems with Carlisle because he can make a below-average team average or good. But I don't know that he can make a great or a good team great. I think he, he has his limits as his coach, as players do. Coaches have limits. Um, but to me, that's the difference with this team is there's a lot more pieces that he can kind of control, per se. Uh, what about Kristaps? I mean, is he is he a guy that – I mean, there's always been massive discussion. Of course, that big rant, uh, him against uh, the TNT guys about – Kristaps being in the post, like, what about his usage and stuff like that on, on this team? Because it always felt like a weird fit, or, or at least this year. Yeah, so Kristaps, to me, I think it's just another thing where Carlisle's kind of had to take um, a step back with some of these younger guys. I think they understand that they have two really good young players in Dallas, and I think they he is starting to understand that he can't control every move. Everyone wants – Kristaps obviously to be like this Dirk of the past. That's kind of what he's always been compared to, but he's a little bit less willing to go in the post. And I think that's just what, like you, like we've been touching on with the transition of today's NBA. I think it works in their benefit to have a guy who's six foot three that can shoot threes. Like he can, like that. He has one of the purest shots I've seen in in the league, and that's coming from you know, a seven foot three guy. So if you have that type of like lethal shooting, um, I understand you want a little bit more out of him from the post, but in today's NBA, I don't think it's as necessary yeah. where it's probably a little bit frustrating for Kyle Carl- Carlisle. Who's had a guy like Dirk in the past, who's willing to go on the high post and post up a little bit more. Um, but like, like we've been saying, the transition from the yesteryears of NBA to today is, is quite a vast difference. So I don't know that you need him to be that kind of post, especially, you know, he'll, he'll get his alley-oop dunks with Luca and stuff. It's, it's not a, it's not a question of if, if he's going to be able to score in the low post. I think he's, he's really done a good job of bulking up over the last couple summers too, to put some muscle on so that he can kind of hang a little bit more in the post. So I don't know. I've, that's something you and me have always talked about. I've been really high on Chris Stops, so I think as long as he stays healthy, he, he can have a really, really good career. I just think it's if he stays healthy. All right, let's get to the NBA schedule. Of course, it was released actually during our show on, uh, what was it, on Friday. So that was pretty fun to have a little bit of discussion on the schedule, but we want to do a bit more of a deep dive on some of these games uh, that we're excited about uh, as the season is officially going to start on July 30th. First, let's start with the two TNT games, the Jazz and the Pelicans and the Clippers and the Lakers. Uh, what excites you about these two matchups? Um, I mean, I think the second one pretty much speaks for itself. The battle the of the best LA. matchup ever yeah. in the league this year. So, 
I, I mean, I think we're all looking forward to that one. I think it's, it's probably a preview of um, Western Conference Finals. Um, but, I mean, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Um, I think starting off with New Orleans is actually going to be as about as good as the NBA could start. I think the, you know, we're going to be looking to see if this New Orleans team can make that final push to maybe get that last playoff spot. Um, I think it's pretty doubtful, but, you know, it'll, it'll be exciting to see Zion back in action first game. And Utah's all around been a solid team, and they're fun to watch. So I think both those games are – I think that's about as good a start as you're going to get mm-hmm. uh, going forward. My, my biggest thing – so keep in mind, th- these are – this is an eight-game schedule. It's not like it's tremendous. It's not yeah. like it's going to be – I mean, we're going to get some stuff out of it, of course. But let's not overreact and say, like, this is playoff basketball. Yeah. This is not going to be playoff basketball. The Clippers and the Lakers, yeah, I'm pretty sure this is going to be a physical and fun game because these two just love to go at it. Yeah. But I, there, there, is there part of you that feels like this is just – I mean, for some of these guys like the Lakers or the Clippers or let's say Milwaukee, for instance, in the East – these teams that have already clinched a spot don't have to worry about seeding too much. They know where they stand. Is it going to feel much more of like a preseason sort of warm up where they kind of run through all 12 players and, and don't push these guys too hard, even if these matchups look interesting on paper? To me, it's going to feel more, let, let me figure out how to phrase this. Less of like a preseason game and kind of more of an all-star game. I think, I don't think you're going to see much, defense in the first couple of these games I think people are going to be warming up kind of like you said um but I think there's going to be a little bit more emphasis on getting out and running I think these guys are going to want to see their conditioning for probably like the first half and I think towards towards the second half like you said kind of taper off and kind of get some of those bench guys in um but I think the first half is going to be a lot a lot faster pace um than I think most NBA games start out as. I think there's going to be a little bit of, to me, there's going to be a little bit of urgency in the first half of these games um, rather than towards the end. I think you're going to see, like you said, the bench guys, and towards the end, of, moving into the playoffs, you're going to see less and less stars before you, you know, get ready for the big run. So as a coach, if you were coaching one of these teams, uh, let's say a, a team like the Lakers, how is your approach different from, a team like the Pelicans where they are trying to make a playoff spot. How do you approach these eight games differently from those two perspectives? Me personally, if I'm the Lakers, I'm, I'm probably, like I said, I'll run my starters the first probably four out of the eight games. And then after that, I'm, I'm kind of resting them just to get ready for I I want to see if, you know, they're in decent conditioning shape and then moving towards the later half I'm just saving up for playoffs um making sure I don't have any injuries you know um like we do usually see down the stretch of an NBA season and then what about for the Pelicans for instance or a team like the Blazers as well how is that different these eight games matter you want to get to an eight in eight seed a spot to get to the playoffs how is that different yeah I think that's that's also kind of what I touched on is I'm going to push the pace about it just as much as I can in these, these first eight games. I'm, I'm looking to get out and run because I think a lot of these older teams, like you said, uh, Clippers, Lakers, if you run into some of these teams, 
I don't know that they're going to have the urgency like we spoke about to really want to, you know, like uh, really push in these games and really press and stuff. So I'm pushing the pace. I mean, New Orleans is already probably the fastest team in the NBA. So I'm, I'm really pushing the pace as far as trying to get out early and get some rest later on in the games when it's pretty much over. So that way, you know, if you do run into a tight game later on against, you know, whoever, let's say Portland, you know, who you're battling for a spot, you know, that you're ready to go. You're ready to kind of make it into a playoff atmosphere, basically. Yeah, basically. Um, But, yeah, I mean, looking at the schedule, I'm interested to get your take as far as which one of these games do you think is going to be the most most competitive in this first, you know, startup of the season, just because – like you said, the LA teams. I don't know that we're gonna get that much effort out of. I'm, well, I'm, I don't know. I I always I always think we're not, and then we do. Yeah, you know, it's one fair. of those things that's really weird. Um, I mean, there there's I I want to look at the Sixers. I mean, they're healthy, and I wonder I think, how that changes a, things. I think that's a good point. I think the Sixers are gonna be a team that are gonna try and really go out of the gate to make sure they're clicking. I think. Actually, now that you bring that up, I think the biggest, the bigger point is I think you're going to see some of these like uh, streaky teams like we've talked about in the past, like Houston 76ers, these type of teams that I think they're going to need to really push because they need to get on kind of that role that they do where they can go on kind of a stretch where, you know, if you're Houston, you're shooting really well, or if you're the 76ers, you're, you're in the right groove type of thing. Yeah, it, it, I don't mean to interrupt you there, but I no, I, no, no, I, no, to... no. Uh, I mean, I think that's one of the more interesting things is these teams that had players at, at the time we suspended the season had players on basically injured, and now they're they're healthy. And I mean, again, the, those streaky teams are going to be really interesting because it's like, what if? I mean, let's be honest. What if the Rockets come out and don't shoot very well? It's yeah. going to be ugly. And they're going to lose no matter who they play by at least 20. So it's those teams that are, are very lenient, uh, which are, are very focused on shooting the ball or, or just kind of up and down and can't really figure themselves out. This could either be an incredible, incredible eight games, or it could be really, really bad. And you could fall uh, down to a much lower seed and have a more difficult road to get to the finals. Do you think it's possible a team like New Orleans goes on an 8-0 run? Yes, maybe I do. Find, maybe I find yourself in a playoff spot? I, I thought the I thought the Pels were going to get the 8 seed. Did you? Yeah. I still think they can. I don't know if 8 games is enough, though. I, I, I'm not sure in terms of the schedule if 8 games is perfect. Maybe you go 10. But, I mean, 8 games is fine. I, we'll see how, the, how it shapes up. I'm not sure that the playoff standings are going to change too much. So, yeah. for a lot of these teams, it's kind of just going to be warm-up games and at least we'll have some basketball to watch, but it is for me. And I, I, I get hype for it, but at the same time, I'm like, okay, where I'm really going to get hype is when we finally get to the playoffs and these yeah. start to feel a lot more real. Yeah. Uh, have you seen like, obviously we've had a few guys not want to do the restart, um, right? Avery Bradley, Willie Cauley Stein, a couple of these guys. What piece do you think one team is really going to miss from the guys that you've seen? Well, I mean, I, I, I think JR's fine. Yeah. <laughs> I guess, I mean, he, and, and so the biggest thing with these rosters is they're expanded as well. It's not yeah. your normal. T- I think it's like 15 to 17. So there's like a few G League guys getting some spots, which is mm-hmm. nice. 
you're going to see some, some, some guys, I think, you're going to have a few games where some of these G-leaguers that come in or free agents that didn't really have a team, maybe Jamal Crawford or guys that are probably going to sign in the next few days, that come in and say, hey, look, I, I should have been up here the whole time. And they're yeah. going to fight, like, for these guys who are actually trying to legitimately make a roster for next season while also trying to compete for a playoff spot, you're going to see these guys be like, you know what, frick this. Frick uh, worrying about getting injured. Like, let's go get a spot on a team next year. Or let's not be sent down in the G League. These these players at the bottom are really going to try to prove themselves because when are you going to get an opportunity like this? You yeah. Know? So it's gonna, it's definitely gonna make some of those these games interesting because these guys are. There's gonna be some of these guys that really are gonna try hard. Yeah, but just going back to that, um, that topic in particular, I think, I think that Avery Bradley loss is gonna be big for the Lakers. I really, Why do you think that's a huge loss? Because I've definitely heard throughout the week that it is a major loss. I, I, I'm not too too big on it, but why do you feel like it's a major loss for them in particular? I feel like that's kind of outside Anthony Davis. I think that's their like key defensive piece. And I think in the Western conference, you really need someone who's going to play defense on a point guard or a shooting guard. And that's exactly what he does while allowing you to have some offensive flexibility, you know, being able to step out and shoot the three ball. But to me that that's probably the, the biggest loss out of any guys that I've seen that aren't coming back for the restart. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm sure I'm in the majority there. But I think him defensively for that team is so huge for what Frank Vogel does that I think that's really going to hurt them, especially when he's been a starter for pretty much all the the whole year. So mm-hmm. that to me is where I'm looking at L.A. Uh, Lakers, you know, and kind of wondering, eh, are they going to be able to fill that void? I mean, you have you have Rondo and Caruso. Caruso is going to step up into a bigger role. You know, but um, I'm I'm a little bit worried about that, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also wanted to highlight the teams that didn't make it to Orlando, kind of do a season review for, for a lot of these uh, teams. Uh, we're going to start with the Warriors. We're going to do three teams today. We're starting with the Warriors. You're not confident about them moving forward, are you? Because you've said that you, you kind of want them to move to a bit more of a rebuild where I think most people in the majority, including myself, think they can come back and compete for a title or at least a conference championship berth next year. Uh, why, are you, why do you feel less confident about them uh, moving into the draft, obviously, where they're going to have a high shot at a top pick, even though this isn't a great draft class, but moving forward into next year? Yeah, um, this is one that, I'm usually in the minority on, um, but to me, I just feel like there's a lot of aging guys here that are taking up a lot of money. I think you're closer to a rebuild than you are being able to compete. And I know a lot of people think that healthy back next year, they're going to be able to compete, but I don't know that Wiggins or yeah, that's basically what you have now. I mean, I don't know who you draft. Probably James Wiseman, and he can kind of be that. I hope so. That needs to be who they draft. Yeah, but I, I don't know that he even fits this type of team that well. Um, I, I just think that – and it's hard. I'm going to get a lot of, like, shame for this. But I think you have to move off Steph Curry. I think he's aging. I, I don't know how his body's going to hold up. He's had knee, ankle problems in the past. He's taken up a lot of money. Obviously, he's been your franchise, like, key – for however long, 
But I just think I'd I'd move everyone except Clay Thompson. That's the one piece. Except Clay, Clay's coming off a torn ACL. Except Clay, Clay is the one guy I would keep because I think, unless you get insane value from, because I also think that's the one guy you could move and get like the most value out of. Um, I don't know how because, that's gonna be difficult either way because the cap and Clay just signed a new contract. Yeah, but just because that's the one guy that can fit pretty much any team with his defense and not needing the ball and stuff. Mm-hmm. I think Draymond, I don't think you're going to get a lot for Draymond. I don't think you'd get basically anything for Wiggins. You know, I I mean, I guess at this point you almost have to kind of just ride it out and hope that you, you hit on your draft pick and the rest of this kind of falls in. I don't know. I just think the depth is really bad on this team. I don't know that there's much intrigue there after Katie left, you know, of wanting to go play for this team. Um, it, it's a team I'll be interested to see. I think they really need to hit on this draft pick, and they really need to hit on that. Uh, or they gave their pick away, didn't they, to get Wiggins? Yeah. I love Wiggins on this team. I do. I think he was actually great last year. Um, Obviously, this team looked a lot different, but you saw guys like Damian Lee, Marquis Chris step up, uh, Pascal step up as well. There's there is young pieces here that are still developing, right? It's not like they're still. It's not like they're like have nobody on their bench that they can rely on. There are pieces here. I think but, you're a little bit more optimistic than me on that one. I look at this team and it it's pretty depleted from what it was. I think was the I, bench. How good was the bench when they even had KD? It wasn't remarkable. Or there may be I mean, you had you had Iggy, you had Sean Livingston. I mean, you had some some proven guys. I think a lot of these guys on this team. I mean, I think your best player coming off the bench is probably, like you said, Pascal. I think that's pretty much. I think that's pretty much what you got. And I don't know that he's he's much more than an you know kind of a poor man's Draymond Green. I don't I don't really know. Moving forward, I don't know how, who you look at and be like. Yeah, this is our guy. That's why I think this draft pick they have to hit on. I'm not too confident about the draft as a whole, though. Because let's be honest, this draft does not look that good. There's no one that really jumps out. And obviously, no March Madness is a huge reason why. But still. It yeah. Doesn't... I I think, yeah, that, that to me is, and this is another hot take for you. Get ready for it. But I think this is why I personally – I would, if I had the chance, draft LaMelo and I'd move Curry. Wow. I would would transition off of that and I would bring some some youth into that position because I really think in the next few years you're going to have problems with your guards. I I, Look, if they come back and they're full, I I guess the biggest thing I have is are they fully healthy or not? Can I see them play like the first two months of the season? See if the magic is still there. Draymond's not the same player, right? I'm worried about Curry and Clay. If they play well and they play to the level they're normally they normally play at, then this team's competitive. What I know, but what what is really the ceiling for you? Like if they're the ceiling is a conference the ceiling is a conference finals berth. Wow. For this team. That's the ceiling. If they play like they're they're they normally play, yeah, that's the ceiling for this team. I don't see it. I mean, unless they're unless they're playing forty eight minutes a night, I really I can't see them. <laughs> so so like, wait, what about Wiggins them, though? 
What about Wiggins? He played Wiggins. well last year. No, nah, that's the one you and me are really going to differ on because Wiggins is the one piece that I'm like, I have no idea why you even did that. I would have rather had D'Angelo Russell and went all small. I would have rather done that. You didn't even like the all small thing. You were like, they got to trade him. They got a piece no, for him. Th- that's how low I am on Wiggins. Like, I would rather do that. I, I, I really I like think- Wiggins. I thought, he was, I thought he was actually really good last year, even for the Timberwolves. There's a reason they, they gave – there's a reason that Russell for Wiggins was valuable. Because Wiggins actually played well last year. It was his first year where he actually kind of popped and played well. Okay, well, Wiggins popping and playing well is on that contract is the equivalent of like it's it's nothing. It's peanuts when you, when you're getting paid that kind of money. What did he average twenty twenty two or something? I mean, it couldn't have been. I think he averaged like yeah about twenty two. Big thing for me is I. The only thing I guess I can say that's decently okay with that Wiggins move is you got a piece that actually fits your lineup. You have someone yeah. who can actually like play a position that you kind of need. Oh my so, god! Yeah, I mean it's all right. I I'm low on Wiggins. I'm low on this team moving forward unless they can. I really think they need to get some different pieces in there. And they really have to hit on the draft this year, which, like you said, is going to be really hard to do considering this is probably the year that we don't have, like, a surefire. No. And, and this is part of my thing with the draft. And as we get closer to the draft, uh, I believe the draft's, like, I don't know, like in October or something. But even the draft lottery, like, let's be honest. If I have a top pick, I'm trading out and getting a player. I'm not drafting. I, I don't, don't even think LaMelo Ball's that good. Get, I don't know what you're going to get trading right. out. Just because, like like we said, like there's not like a surefire, mm-hmm. for sure, like guy that you can put your finger on and go, yeah, he's going to be good. Yeah, so Wiggins finished with uh, basically 22 points a game, five rebounds, and four assists. You know who actually, now that I think about it, who actually would be a decent – like draft pick for this team is I think if they got Obi Toppin. I, think I that, like Obi Toppin a lot. I think that would be the best pick for this team as far as fit goes. Yeah. He, but he's pretty much a guard, is he? Eh, small forward. You know, he's yeah. he's got a little bit more like bounce and stuff, you know. So. Yeah. All right, let's go on to the uh, Timberwolves. So the team that got D'Angelo Russell in the trade. Um... What's the longevity of Cat on this team? Like, is it over? Is it time to just cut their losses and get rid of Carl Anthony Towns and figure this out and like I don't move think forward? So. I, I think now that you got D'Angelo Russell there, I think you you keep Cat and you build around those two. I think those two as a friendship is going to kind of hold up, like keep that kind of afloat for this team. Um, I don't I don't think you move off a talent like Cat unless you absolutely have to. And I understand the frustrations over the last couple of years for him and stuff. Um, but to me, to me, they killed that trade. Like we were just touching on with, with the Warriors. I think getting a pick and getting D'Angelo Russell was outstanding for Wiggins. And plus you got cats, arguably him outside of Devin Booker is like his best friend. You know what yeah. I mean? So maybe you try and lure Devin Booker in, you know, I don't, <laughs> they I don't can't know. do that. They I, can't yeah. do that because of money. Yeah. Um, you know, but- I, but I think you just try and you bring a couple pieces in there. You 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 hope that 
Golden State isn't good this year, so that way that draft pick is worth something and you get another young piece in here, or you can move that piece for something else, and I think you try and go from there. Malik Beasley's really underrated. He played pretty well down the stretch. Jared Culver needs more time. He actually needs to play more minutes. He didn't play enough last year. He needs to play more minutes. This team is still pretty young bench-wise, but those are kind of the two that you would highlight. Yeah, the the only problem I have with Malik, Malik Beasley is he's going to ask for a lot of money this this summer. Yeah, he's, he I think he kind of knows the market for his his uh, specialty, which is three and D type of guy, you know. Yeah. And I think he's going to be asking for a lot. That's one piece I would not overpay for, and I think there's going to be right. a lot of teams overpaying for that type of guy this summer, kind of like we saw with uh, Robert Covington. I think the Rockets gave up a little little much um but those type of guys are like in hot demand right now so so with this d'angelo russell trade is this more of a friendship trade or was this a trade that actually has some substantial like all right here's we have something here with these two and we can make something work and we can build a roster or was it just like oh we want to make cat happy so let's make this trade was was there actually some substance to it from the front office and from the coaches to actually want to make this deal? I think if I if I put myself in their shoes, I think it's a friendship trade. I think they just wanted to keep Cat happy. Now, me personally, I think it's not that bad of a trade. I think I I actually think it was a really good trade. I think these two can work together. I know it's you're getting basically no defense then. If you're two top players or those two, you're going to get zero defense. But I think the offensive output is really good. Um, you just need Cat because he's shown flashes of being a good defensive player. You you kind of need to talk him into being like, okay, we got D'Angelo here. We know we're going to get no defense out of him. We just need you to be like steady type of thing. You know what I mean? Like just be steady. You don't. Like, you don't have to be outstanding defensively, but just give us somewhat of a presence because on the perimeter, like, we're going to get none from D'Angelo Russell. So we're going to put up points, but we just need a little bit more steadiness on defense. Um, but to me, this trade can work, but I think it was more of a let's keep Cat happy because, like I said, you don't want to lose that type of talent. Yeah. I thought it was a great trade from, from both sides, personally. Yeah. Uh, And then finally, uh, the final team we're going to do today is the Atlanta Hawks. Now, this team actually has a pretty good future ahead of them. Um, With Trey Young, with John Collins, this is one of the few teams that didn't have a great record. You actually can look at and say, oh, yeah, they have something here. And Clint Capella didn't play last year. Yeah, Like, didn't play for them at all. And he's an absolute rebounding machine and can really help this team. DeAndre Hunter, they're looking for more out of. Kevin Herter is a nice piece. This is not a bad roster at all. No, it's it's a really good young roster to build around. I think moving off that Torian, Torian Prince contract was really good for this team. Um, like you said, a lot of good young pieces that I think is just going to take time. You need more out of DeAndre Hunter, like you said. I think Clint Cabell is going to be really big for this team. I think they really needed to get a center in there that could shot block, play defense, rebound. Give a lob threat. You know, you have John Collins, obviously, that can be a lob threat. But, um, yeah, I, I really like the direction this team is going. And Trey Young is a lot better than I thought he was going to be. Um, so that's a good piece. I think Cam Reddish is 
underrated in the fact that he he just needs to develop a little more and I think he, he needs more playing time yeah I agree I think he needs to get his his minutes and I think he can be that kind of Paul George uh prototype that he was supposed to be coming out of college um so yeah I think they have a good nucleus there um but I do I'll let you speak on it and then I'll make one other well, point. well so, so here so here's my here's my main question this team is modeled semi after, you know, the Warriors, like the Stephen yeah. Clay. They have some Warriors personnel uh, there with, I believe, their GM as well. Do you see that building with this team? Obviously, maybe not to the level, but do you see the building blocks here at all? Yeah, I do. I, I Trey Young and Kevin Herter, I think, are your Stephen Clay. I mean, Kevin Herter is not exactly a defensive player like, like Clay is, right. but – you know, you, you have the shooting backcourt. You have the same type of thing. Um, they have the one thing that the Warriors always lacked, which was a center. You know, they have Clint Capella now, a good young center to build with this young uh, guards. John Collins is, you know, a solid player. I don't he's know. really good for me. He's, he's, I, he's played excellent. See, to me, I don't know why, but I'm not as high on John Collins as everyone else is. Like, I've seen – like, I, obviously, I follow stuff on, like, Bleacher Report and stuff. And Atlanta Hawks fans act like John Collins is, like, Luka Doncic. Like, they're like, oh, we have John Collins. Like, he's some huge piece that they can trade. Like, he's awesome. And don't get me wrong. He's a good young player. But I'm not, like, this is my franchise building block type of guy. Your franchise yeah. building block is right here. Yeah. That's it. It's yeah. right here. It's Trey Young. Which, like, that's what it is. Yeah, but. Yeah, I, I can't understand that whole thing with Atlanta Hawks fans, I guess. They think John Collins is, like, heaven sent, which he's good. Don't get me wrong, but I don't know that he's, like, that good. Yeah. But anyway, moving past that, yeah, I can see, like, you know, like you said, kind of that Warriors, like, prototype. I think they have way more depth. Um, obviously, they've drafted really well and moved off of some good pieces to get some younger pieces. Um, DeAndre Hunter needs to be what they thought he was going to be. Didn't perform and, very well last year, even with some pretty good minutes. Yeah, so that that to me is the piece that you, you need to get more out of. Um, but one thing I do want to touch on is I do feel bad for Vince. I wanted Vince to get his full last yeah last end of the season, you know. But um, what a, you know, honestly, what a weird career end, man. Yeah, that's what oh, I mean. Man. It would be hard for me to be like, you know what? I I know he said that was the end, but it would have it would have been okay with me if he was like, ah, one more year. Like, let's have a regular ending to my career. Like, let's. Is, is there any possible way he can get cut and then like signed to to like a, a Orlando ten team? A ten day, yeah. Like, yeah, like just... it's like, man. Yeah, that. <laughs> it it was kind of sour to me. I wanted him to just because. He's been in the league for so long. I just was like, just get the guy a normal ending. But uh, it, I mean, he basically, I mean, he, he got a pretty fun ending. I mean, it's going to be weird looking back on his career. And, and he's a Hall of Famer. I mean, yeah. there's no argument. The guy's a Hall of Famer. The guy's a legend of the game. And for him to be in the league as long as he has and the longevity that he's had is remarkable. I mean, Definitely. it's amazing. Um. But Especially it, for the type of bounce he had, you know, you thought that those knees were going out years ago. Yeah. I, but he, he hangs around, so. It's a weird ending, though. I think one of the weirdest things for Vince Carter is to think about the, 
the slam dunk contest. You'll think about his Toronto years, but then you also think of what has to be the most bizarre ending to a Hall of Fame career in all sports. Most definitely. Has the, to thing, be. the thing I always give credit to Vince for is even towards the end, he just wanted to keep re-signing with these, you know, bad Atlanta Hawks teams towards the end. He wanted you know, some playing time, man. He wanted some playing time, but he, he, I think he really enjoyed being around the young guys and kind of showing them the ropes and kind of, you know, not just, like you said, kind of being a bench, an afterthought on a really good team. He wanted to be, you know, a piece that could play a little bit. And I, I, to me, what stands out is being able to, you know, help these young guys, you know, become professionals. Because at the end of the day, that's what it's about. You know, you have to be a professional. You have to know how to go about it the right way. And I think he really, he really like uh, displayed that throughout his career. You know, and, and, and watching him talk over the last week, I think he's just so at peace with what happened. I'm sure he does feel sad about it. And I think we all are, as, as, again, as I just said, it's the weirdest career end to any, any Hall of Fame player ever. It's, it's strange, but he seems so at peace with it and so comfortable being like, yeah, I'm done. That, like, I'm that's, 42, to I'm me, done. that's to me the biggest point, like you said, is like I find it so remarkable that a guy like that can just, like you said, kind of be at, at peace with it. You know, it just – he he understands it is what it is and takes it for what it is. You know what I mean? He's not sour about it or anything. He he just takes it for what it is. And personally speaking, I'd have a really hard time with that. So it's it's really yeah. respectable to see how he handled the whole situation. Uh, 100%. Um, all right. So let's see. Our our last – or that's that's pretty much it. Those are the three teams. Now let's go on to – the UFC, we wanted to talk about uh, Poirier Hooker, uh, Vegas number four. I love how the UFC is using the hashtags of number four and all that for these Vegas cards. It sucks that we can't really travel around and have different hashtags and stuff like that. But I, I personally watched the last three fights. Uh, I think we kind of pretty much wanted to touch on the co-main and the main event. Um, yeah. So Mike Perry and Mickey Gall. Mickey Gall is one of my favorite UFC stories coming from looking for, for a fight series. He had a pretty cool following uh, at, a, at the lower promotions. And then he's like, I want to fight CM Punk, which was a perfect way to start your career because, yeah, you win uh, pretty easily with the whole CM Punk experiment. But he's built a nice career for himself in the UFC so far. But Mike Perry, first, his, his girlfriend I respect. But I love how she, like, watching her do corner is so weird. Like, I have respect, but it's weird. Like, I remember his fight last year, and she's like, kick him, kick him. Like, it's, it's so weird. And then to just see her do the corner by herself and to see, like, it's like she's just putting ice on his head or stuff like that. I mean, we didn't hear too much of of her in the corner, not that it was necessarily needed because he still dominated, but yeah. how, like, how, how much for you is the corner man or corner woman help these fighters during a fight? Are they really that important, or does a fighter have enough instinct to know what to do at the right time? How important are 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 these corner men and women for these fighters during a fight in particular? Yeah, I just to touch on her for a sec. It is a little bit unorthodox, you know, to have your girlfriend be your corner yeah. corner woman you know whatever yeah. um but to speak on 
your point of, you know, does it really help them? I think um, uh, Mike Perry, uh, excuse me, towards the end of the fight and after the fight when they interviewed him, you know, said he, he really credits his team and stuff for having a good game plan for him. Um, but he also mentioned that, he, he, you know, he picked up on so, sort of some of the lingo that the other corner was kind of throwing out for different moves that they wanted him to attack or whatever, you know. So I I think there is a lot of, like, natural kind of instinct that these fighters do have, you know, and can pick on some of this, you know, uh, stuff. But I think a lot of it, like I said, when Perry says at the end of the fight, he really has to credit his team and stuff. I think leading up to the fight, there's a lot of game planning and stuff that, that goes on that's that's huge for these guys. Less of it, I think, during the actual fight itself. Um, but I, I think it's it's something where when they're game planning and they're getting ready for the fight, these guys really have to gear up for stuff. But I don't I don't think it's necessarily like prominent to have, you know, like a really great cornerman during the fight unless I think it gets really ugly and, you know, they start to get beat a little bit punch drunk and stuff like that, you know, then you probably need someone kind of guiding you a little bit more, but he was, he was handling the fight pretty well. So I, I don't think he had any problem with this particular fight. How important for you are the corner men and women in these fights though? Do you find them as valuable at, if I, you're a I, fighter? I personally don't just because, like I said, I think there's a lot of game planning and, you know, your team really gears you up in, you know, camp and stuff to make sure that you're ready to go leading up to the fight. I don't know that it's necessarily, you know, the biggest thing ever when they're actually, you know, during the fight. Cause like you said, you'll hear like, not exactly like, uh, Mike Perry's girlfriend, you know, kick him, kick him, whatever, you know, they, they throw out a little bit more advice, but um, I think you can kind of, you know, kind of piece it together. It doesn't have to be exactly, like, perfect, you know, whatever whatever advice you're throwing out as far as, you know, game plan. Because I think a lot of the times the fighters kind of ignore the corner too. I mean, I've, I've been watching UFC for so long. I've, I've seen some fights where, you know, the guy gets in the corner and goes, what the hell were you doing? I've been telling you to do this the whole time, and the fighter's not even there. Or, you know, the – I think it was last week I watched or two weeks ago, I watched the, the prelims for one of the cards and they got the fight was over and someone had tapped out and he immediately after he tapped out, he just started yelling at his corner and said, what kind of advice was that? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, he's like, you, you gave me the complete wrong advice and now I just lost. So I think there's, you know, there's something to be said for uh, leading up to the fight, but in the fight, I think it's more instincts. We have breaking news. I repeat, we have breaking news for the second show of the weekend. As we're doing the show, we have breaking news. This is probably even bigger than the NBA breaking news. Cam Newton has just signed a one-year deal worth a maximum of $7.5 million with the New England Patriots. No way. Cam Newton has signed a one-year deal with the Patriots Breaking news for the second time on the show. Your reaction before we get to the rest of the UFC stuff. Oh, man. I Okay, I didn't see that one coming. When you said breaking news, I thought we were going to get some baseball news or something. But I guess my initial reaction is 
I don't know how he's going to work in New England. That personality in New England, being a backup quarterback to start, I have... – I mean, he's probably going to start for the Patriots. I, I don't think the first couple weeks. You think, you think Jared Stidham's going to start for him? I think he's their guy. And to be honest, I, I mean, obviously I've been listening to you guys talk on the NFL for a while now. I think they're, they're going towards a tank mode. I think they're tanking for Trevor. I mean, it's a one-year deal. Right, but like, how does Belichick work with a mobile quarterback? Obviously, we don't know how mobile Cam is actually going to look next year if we have a full season, but how do you think Bill Belichick's strategy of this offense changes with Cam Newton? I, that's, that's where I'm intrigued. I, I, we've never seen Belichick, you know, or Josh McDaniels even really work with a mobile quarterback like that. So I'll be intrigued to see, I think Cam Newton's the only guy who Belichick hasn't beaten before, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I believe so. So I think that, I think there's some intrigue there for Belichick where he's like, huh, I've never personally been able to figure this out. So maybe bring him in and I think they'll have set packages and stuff for him, but. To me, I, I think they're going to let Stidham go. I think he's their guy. That, and I think they'll have, like I said, set packages for Cam. But to me, this year for New England is more about, like I said, I think they're tanking for Trevor. I think they really want Trevor Lawrence. And I think, you know, they understand that this is probably the one down year that they can have and kind of re, re-up it next year. But, um, yeah, I'll be really interested to see how Cam does in that type of environment because Cam is – Got a lot of personality, to say the least. So, not exactly the fit I would be looking for. But, um, I guess, according to you, you're, you're probably looking at Cam to start, huh? I, I think he starts. I, I think there's a reason it's a one-year deal. They don't want him long-term. You know, there's no reason for him to, you know, have a longer deal than that. But I, I do feel that he... This made the most sense because where else in the league doesn't really have a a shoe-in starter, basically? I mean, most teams have, like, fringe starters, but this made the most sense for me in terms of just, hey, this is a a guy that that needs a starting role. He wanted a starting role. The only team that really had one available at this point was the Patriots. It's a one-year deal. I honestly feel like Belichick is going to make him less mobile. I don't think they want him running that much. I think they are concerned about the shoulder. I think he personally is concerned about the shoulder and all, all the other surgeries he's had. I think they're going to try to make him less mobile and make him focus on throwing the ball. My God, he's he has been so inaccurate for so long. Maybe Belichick's the guy who can fix that. Is this team a playoff team now because, because Cam's there? Probably not. But do they win a couple more games than we than we maybe originally thought? Yeah, probably. Yeah, probably six and ten or seven and nine. I don't think they make the playoffs. Do you, do you think? To me, he would have been the best fit in Chicago. Yeah, Chicago. I mean, but they. I mean, I, I don't know how comfortable they were with Cam though, considering they picked up Nick Foles, which I don't know how that's going to work. Um, but. Yeah, Excuse Chicago me would have made more sense. I'm, no problem. I'm trying to find my charger, sorry. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> yep. But I, I do feel like they're just going to try to make this thing work by not making them run as much. I, I Hey, I'll tell you one thing. Jillian Edelman's pretty happy. Oh, yeah, I'm sure he, he finally, <laughs> finally got a solid quarterback to be able to throw the ball to him. Yeah. Um, 
But I, I don't know. I, I think they're going to try and utilize Kim. I think him being on a one-year deal is all the more motivation for this this team to be able to utilize his running and kind of just let him go free reign here. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I'll be I'll be interested to see how that works because, I mean, what's more exciting than replacing Tom Brady than replacing Tom Brady with Cam Newton? Yeah. So that was a shocker that we weren't expecting. <laughs> yeah, uh, that was definitely a little <laughs> bit odd. Sorry, I'm back on. Found my charger. No problem. All right, so let's move back to the UFC. Uh, Justin Poirier, Dan Hooker. This was one of the best fights of the year. Um, really, I had no clue who would win this fight. It was really good. I mean, they kind of just went at it. It was weird because it was like watching. It was like watching a boxing match where they just don't care to block. Yeah, they just kind of went at it. To me, it was the best fight of the year. It was. It was really. Really intriguing. Um, like you said, both guys were just kind of slugging it out, hands down. Didn't really care, you know. Like hit me with your best shot, and I'm gonna trade one back with you. Um, but I mean, as fight fans, I'm I'm sure you can speak on this too. But that's about that's about all you want in a fight is two guys that are willing to just kind of slug it out a little bit. Um, keeps it a little bit more entertaining. Um, but I don't know if there was any controversy for you, but I definitely. I thought Poirier won the last three rounds, so. I didn't care who won. You didn't care who I, won? I came, I, came, I came to a point where I couldn't figure out my scorecard. <laughs> like, I, I was in the third round going, uh, uh, I don't know who won. Yeah. Like, there, a lot of people, you could see the comments in the, in the corner of the broadcast, and a lot of people were like, yeah, I have it, uh, you know, 10-9, Poirier this round or whatever. And then all of them would be like, well, I don't really care how you want to score it. I can't really keep up anymore. It just kind of, you can have your own opinion and I'll have mine because there's really no definitive this answer. This shows how tough it is to be a judge. Like, this is one of those fights where you're just like, I've lost. I don't this, know. This, I lost. This is the one fight that I, that I have said I wouldn't want to be a judge for this fight. Yeah, this is yeah. the one because usually I'm. I'll be honest. I'm a little bit of a critic with these. With these. No, judges. I think we all are. I mean, all of us who cover the sport and are hardcore fans of it know that these judges aren't perfect. Yeah, and I've definitely you and me have had some debates where I've been really harsh on some of these refs. Um, but this one or to me the is judges. the one. Yeah. The one where I was like, oh yeah, okay, yeah, you can kind of pick whoever you want. This one, this one's kind of was just a pick 'em. It was. It was pretty, pretty even, you know. Um, but like I said, I, I did think Poirier did win the last three rounds. Um, mm-hmm. And I think towards the end of the fight, he showed a little bit more gas in the tank. He, he was pressing a little bit more and stuff like that, you know. So mm-hmm. um, I, wa- I wanted to ask you, though, what do you think coming back, because Poirier's been out for, what, a, a year now or something. Yeah. Um, so what do you think his ceiling is coming back? Do you think he can – he can contend in this division or do you think, because obviously you and me have spoke on this too, but I think this is probably the most exciting division in the UFC. I mean, it is, but it's also the strangest one. I mean, there's a reason why guys have moved to lower divisions or higher divisions here because we just kind of don't know. And kind of like the heavyweight division, it's kind of always on hold. Mm-hmm. Like you can see guys like Poirier and hooker fight and be like, okay, yeah, they can like, I think Poirier can definitely go back up and compete for the title, but how long is he going to have to wait? I mean, Khabib is in Ramadan. He's not going to 
fight until September. Uh, we don't know about Tony Ferguson. We don't even know about Connor. He's not retired, please. The guy's not retired. We know this. He's not retired. He will come back at some point. Is that but the third time we've heard him say that? Yep, yeah, yeah. Third time, yep. Third time's the charm? No, it's not. Probably the seventh. I don't know. Look, we just don't know. He had too much proper 12. (laughs) (laughs) Little proper 12. He watched a couple of fights, and he said, I'm out again. (laughs) I mean, obviously, Ariel um, reported that there wasn't, you know, that there wasn't – he wanted to fight. They just didn't want him to, whatever. But, yeah, this division, kind of like the heavyweight division, is kind of on hold. I think you're going to see a lot of these interim belt fights in this division or – see more matchups like this for a guy like Poirier until they can kind of figure this division out by beginning of October, hopefully. Yeah, I think that's – I like Poirier, but I think that's my biggest kind of argument with him is that he doesn't seem to really want to fight that much anymore. And I know he said at the end of the fight yesterday that, you know, he wants to continue to love the sport and not, like, burn himself out. But, like, you already took a year off, and now he's saying he might wait a whole other year to fight after he just fought. You know, I don't know how much of that is true, but it's like I'd, I'd kind of like to see a little bit more urgency from him, you know, after, especially after sitting out a year. Maybe, you know, he calls out Connor right away or something and says, you know, let's let's get a fight going in – whatever, six months, you know, rather than, you know, waiting a whole nother year. But yeah. is the UFC addicted to wanting to have Connor fight Khabib? Like, yeah. are we, is that basically what's going to happen here? Is it just going to kind of be on hold and maybe we'll get Khabib Ferguson again? Prayers. We need that fight. That, <laughs> Please. That's, that's my we need point. that fight. That's going to be the best fight and we're not going to get it. That would be you. The you best. feel like we're not going to get Khabib Ferguson at no. all in Fight Island. Maybe we're, in Fight Island next year. We're not. No, we're never. We're never going to get it. Never. You're, you're, not, I'm convinced it's never going to happen. And that to me is so frustrating because that to me would be the best UFC fight. Yeah, I think those two match up so well. Ground game, striking, all of it. You know, I think both those guys are so well rounded that that would be the best fight. And I just know we're just not going to see it. The timing's never going to line up where we get to see that fight. So September? No. Too many other obsessions. Like you said, Connor and Khabib or, you know, Gaethje's going to want a shot at Khabib, whatever, blah, blah, blah. It's just. Oh yeah, that's right. Gaethje Gaethje and Khabib needs to happen first. I forgot about that. Yes, that's right. Cause he has the interim. Oh God. Yep. So, so that it, can't happen in September because they, they, yeah. Now you're going to get Poirier versus Ferguson. Probably not for a year. You know, it's, it's going to be. What a mess. Yeah. It's an even bigger mess than that, I completely forgot. Oh my God. How did I forget that's, that? That's the problem because this is the most exciting division when you look at, you know, ranked fighters, but the way it's structured and the way the fights are set up, the, and the schedule, like the timeline of it, it's just not going to line up to where we get the fights that we should. Yeah. What do I you mean, think? I, that, what do you think of that next card coming up, though? I mean that um, that is a good card. I oh mean, yeah, Usman yeah. Burns is gonna be fun. We're gonna get to that as we get closer because don't we have we have next week, which is July fourth, and that's July eleventh. Mm-hmm. So we'll we'll most likely get to that next week if we can. Uh, but we can look at the card really quickly. I mean, this is. I'm excited for Fight Island. We saw the picture of Dana 
yeah. last uh, or yesterday saying that they're building an octagon outside. I love Paige Van Zandt. I feel like this is the, her last fight in the UFC. I think more than likely she'll probably go to Bellator. Uh, yeah. But these three title fights, I mean, if we get the chance to cover it uh, next week, but if not, uh, let's go through it now. What do you think about these three title fights? What excites you about this card and what excites you about Fight Island as a whole? Yeah, I mean, you sent me the picture of that Fight Island. It looks pretty exciting. Um, but just speaking on the card itself, this is about as stacked as a USC, UFC card gets. I mean, Usman and Burns is going to be a really, really good fight. I think that's going to be one of the better fights we've seen in a long time. Um, Volkanovski, um, Max Holloway is the, the second. You know, it's the rematch. Uh, Max Holloway is easily probably my top two, one of my top two favorite fighters, so I always love watching him fight. Um, Jose Aldo gets his last chance to kind of claim that uh, belt after – Henry Cejudo kind of vacate or did vacate that title, um, but I think Peter Yan handles him pretty well at his at his age. But I think, like you said, these these women fights are are also really good. Rose Namajunas is always exciting to watch against uh-huh. Jessica Andrade. What a great strawweight battle! That is right there. a really really good one. And like you said, Paige Van Zandt is one of my favorite female fighters. So that'll be that'll be good to watch. Yeah. Um, it's going to be interesting because if Paige can can win and, and be successful. I mean, she's kind of been up and down in this division. Of course, she's gone through so many injuries. If she wins this fight handily, there is a case for the UFC to, to give her a new contract. Uh, yeah. But if not, I, I'd be totally fine uh, seeing her and, of course, your husband in Bellator. Because yeah. that seems to be the likely scenario as we move forward with her. Yeah, I, I, I'd seem to agree with that. But that last one on the prelim, too, that Vulcan and yeah, Vulcan Ozdemir, yeah. That'll be a good one. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, prelim. I, I've been – I'm sure you've been watching a lot of UFC too lately, but yeah. there's been a lot of good cards lately. Definitely. I, they're really pushing out some good ones, I think, because they know, you know, with the pandemic going on, this is really – This is the only major sport on other than soccer. So, And plus, all these cards are on ESPN, so what a perfect time to have some good cards and some good fights. Exactly. All right, so we're going to do a couple more UFC stuff here. Let's see. Um, so last week, what was it? Max, uh, I forgot the guy's last name, but I wanted to specifically talk about this. Uh, first, let me play the audio courtesy of BT Sport, um, and then we'll have a discussion about this. All right, we got this, champ. Follow. Listen, listen. Follow. Huh? Follow. You're gonna beat this guy, Max. We got this. You can beat this guy. Listen, we got this. no. Listen. No, we got this, Max. Okay, stop it. Stop it. We got this. They breathe. Okay, catch your breath. No. We're gonna beat this guy. Keep it on your feet. You're gonna clinch. No. Call it. Call it. You sure you're gonna lose, Max? Yeah. We got I this, don't want to No, we got this, Max. No, You're a champion. I don't have it. You champion? Stop it. I don't have it. Stop it. it. You're a champion. You're a champion. We're going to finish, finish this round on top of it. I'm going to decision. Okay? Get on top of him. Out wrestle him. We got this. Let's go. Let's go. One good hold right here. You can't. You want to fight or no? He wants to call. He wants to call. He wants to call. Hey, come here. Do you want to continue to fight? No, sir. Okay. And basically, the ref says that's it at the end. 
uh, that audio again, courtesy of BT Sport. Um, so this is something that you and I have had discussions on for years now about, you know, what's the responsibility to a cornerman when a fighter says, you know, I'm done. And this guy was on a, you know, short notice fight. He was done. Um, and, and he clearly said, call it. I'm done. I'm good. I don't want to hurt myself more. There's so much of a focus, obviously, in a sport uh, as, you know, as brutal, I guess you can put it, as the UFC. Um, the importance of keeping these fighters safe, and that goes for the refs and the cornermen. But let's specifically talk about his corner. What do you think about that audio? Yeah, um, this is something you and me have touched on a little bit in the past. Um, I think this one's this one's different for me because I've I've never heard the fighter say he wants to be done, uh, and you know have his corner kind of say no. This is that kind of it's that gray area in fighting where it would be really difficult to make the call. Um, obviously, I've I've expressed my frustrations to you in the past of. Um, you know, a fighter really wanting to fight and either the corner throwing in the flag or, you know, the, the rest. Towel. Yeah. Or the, the official stopping the fight. Um, I mean, the doctor, I feel like we've been robbed of some pretty good endings. Um, but I think this is something that you've kind of expressed to me and it's become a little bit more of an issue to me of, you know, there is a line of fighter safety that we need to be, you know, very cautious of because these guys are already beating themselves up pretty good, you know, throughout camp and obviously not too bad in camp and stuff, but throughout these fights and stuff, you know, they, they get beat up pretty good, broken bones, you know, stuff, open cuts. Um, but I've never heard a fighter say that he wants to be done and have the corner say no. And I, I do understand the corner telling him, no, you're good, you know, uh, for one or two times. But the fact that he keeps saying he wants to be done and the corner still saying no um, is a little bit – I don't know how to say it, but it's a little bit like uh, – Frustrating? Because for me it was. It's frustrating, but a little bit kind of sickening. I don't know the right word for it, but it's like, you know, if if a guy wants to call his own, you know, his own self and say, I'm done, I understand you're there to motivate him and you're there to keep him, you know, grounded and stuff. But after one or two attempts to try and keep him in the fight, I think one probably, you know, after you check in with him and say, you know, you're good, whatever. And he says, no, really, I want to be done. I think that's where you kind of like need to draw the line and say, you know, it is what it is. And I think I, I don't want to put too much on the corner right now because I don't know the specifics. They might have thought he, you know, he got battered up a little bit and he's not exactly in the right state of mind. But even then is reason for caution if he's in that state of mind and you know you're you're unsure of if he if he's sure that he wants to continue fighting that's probably where the line needs to be drawn so for you this is a much different situation than oh this person is is clearly battered up and the corner should throw in the towel and it's it's over than seeing an actual fighter want it which raises concern because to be completely honest the fighter knows when he's safe or not or when he's comfortable especially with him being on short notice I think it makes a lot of sense but that that kind of stops you in your tracks a little bit in terms of like hey this is too much 100% because I've, I've expressed to you in the past when a fighter thinks he's good you know and I'll go back it's like I said it's kind of that gray area because like 
like you and me have talked before, if I, if I think a fighter and the fighter wants to keep going, I think he understands that he's putting himself in danger, whether the corner, you know, the, the doctor, whoever is telling him, no, I think he understands that. Um, but you do need to look out for his safety as well. And like I said, some of these guys do get a little bit, they, they call it punch drunk when he's been hit so many times that he's not exactly thinking straight, you know, obviously mm-hmm. I'm sure some of our viewers have been in fights, you know, you get hit a few times. It's, it's a little bit different. What you know? high school fights? What are we yeah. doing? <laughs> Which doesn't even compare, but what right. I'm saying is, you know, a lot of these guys maybe not be in the right frame of mind, but at least he's acknowledging, you know, like I'm good. I'm good. Where this is a completely different scenario to me where if a fighter's saying no, I, I can't, I, like I said, I understand wanting to keep him in the fight because he does train hard for this and stuff, you know, and you're his quarterman and you're supposed to support him and stuff. So maybe one time saying, hey, you're good, you know, you're the champ, like let's, let's stay in here. But, but not the keeps, third or fourth. If he keeps reiterating himself, that to me is just, it's a little bit gross. Like it's yeah. like, okay, let's, let's yeah. draw the line here. No, I'm right there know, with you. Because you and me have had this talk in the past, so – I don't know how you feel. I'm curious to see how you feel because it is different than what me and you have talked in the past. Like you said, it's different where we've always had debates of, you know, the referee stopping the fight or a doctor or something rather than a fighter saying, yeah, this is. I think this is where everyone is, is on the same page or most everyone is that like, if the fighter says, call it and him repeating, call it he or she, it's over. Like it's done because the fighter themselves understands how safe or how comfortable they can be if you're not comfortable fighting or like i mean obviously this is a much different case when the person's in the middle of the fight obviously there's been fights in the past where guys are like saying i'm not in the right frame of mind when i got to the arena or things like that right and mm-hmm. obviously that's a much different situation but when you're in a fight and you're just like i i'm done you're done because the fighter themselves knows how safe they can be or how comfortable they can be. And I think the comfortability more so than anything, because, and this is where the ref was smart to be like, yeah, we're done. We're done. Like, because yeah, there shouldn't have been a question. Once it has been brought to the ref, it should be, if you're not comfortable, then why are you like, it's fine. Like if you're not, if you're in the second or third round and you're not comfortable and you're done, like in the corner, then you're done. This is, this is one of the best jobs for the ref. And I think that's a good point that you make. And that's the point I usually try to, you know, display to you when we have these, you know, debates about the referee stopping the fight is that the fighter knows it best, you know, regardless of the situation, he understands he's been in these situations so many times that he probably knows, you know, where the line is. So when he says he's good, I would like it more if they said he's good. But if he's saying he's done, there should be no question that he's right. done. It's... Right. All right. Last thing on the docket for today. Uh, Daniel White's comments about the career uh, was really interesting. So he said, I'm going to read off his quote. He says, my number one goal always is that I don't want to lay off employees. I don't want fighters to be inactive or unable to compete. You know, when you're a professional athlete, you have a very small window of opportunity, a very limited amount of time. You know, we get into all this money stuff that's going on right now. Everyone asks that this is a career. This is not a career. This is an opportunity. Anything can happen at any moment. Your knee could blow out your back. Uh, COVID-19, who knows what's coming down the pipeline. So take every opportunity that you can get. What is your thoughts on Dana's statement uh, earlier in the week about 
UFC and fighting in general is not a career, it's an opportunity. What's your thoughts on that? Um, this to me is like, I don't know how to, how to phrase this. It's like, it's insensitive in some aspects, but there's also some truth to it. I can see both sides of it. Um, I do think there are limited opportunities in this sport. I, I do agree with him. You know, there's, there's very few chances that these guys get to, you know, get money fights or whatever, you know, and I think that's why a lot of them do take it is because there's so few chances for those opportunities. But also there needs to be some sensitivity around, you know, obviously a pandemic going on right now. There needs to be a little bit more carefulness around, you know, maybe laying off an employee for a certain amount of time is necessary. You know what I mean? There, there, there's some parts to where it is necessary to keep the overall health and the overall longevity of not just the fighters, but everyone else involved. Um, it kind of feels like a money grab to me. And that's something I've kind of reiterated with Dana a lot is I feel like he does a lot of like money grabs where he says certain things and does certain things for the overall growth of the UFC rather than like you and me have talked about player or fighter, you know, um, safety or wages or. Right. Which you talked about last week. Yeah. So this is always kind of, I keep saying it, but it's the same problem I have with Dana a lot. I just feel like the UFC is trending in a direction where they're really trying to create like this kind of WWE atmosphere almost. Yeah. Obviously not to that extent, but similar there are pieces to it. Yeah. yeah. It is weird because I think the, the fighting is a career, but there, there is this, there has been this thing over the last decade or at least the last, you know, few years that I followed the UFC where it has gotten so big where guys like Ronda not only fight, but do movies and, you know, these guys have different endeavors, podcasts, whatever, like, but all of that in one is a career, right? People like, when we like to talk about the NFL and commentary, like guys like Troy Aikman, their career is, I played football for this many years and now I'm a commentator, but you're still like around the sport or, or I guess in this case, you're not around the sport if you're doing movies, but all of that in one is kind of your career and what you've done. But all of that is partially sort of because of the fighting, but the problem with how, how, how that has changed the sport is that the problem is if you're going to fight in this sport, you're going to fight, right? Mm-hmm. You're not in there to, to fight. If you're not in there to fight and win the belt, I mean, Brandon Schaub talked about this last week. If you're not there to win the belt, then why are you there? You know, yeah. you're not going to get all these movies opportunities unless you can't build the brand. Building a brand is also partially getting the belt, even though yeah. maybe the belt has lost a lot of its longevity for, other reasons as well yeah i think i think that's a really good point that you make i think like i said this has some credibility to it obviously these guys like i said they need to fight to be able to you know make a living and stuff like you said also building that brand is winning is part of building the brand and you need those opportunities like how i've said a million times when people fight connor i don't think it's always in like Cowboy's last fight with Connor, I don't think that was even really him wanting to fight. I think that was him, you know, looking at it and saying, I can get a title fight, make some money, you know, build my brand a little bit more of, you know, mm-hmm. 
Cowboy Cerrone. Like that's you know it's yeah. it's more than just that one fight where, like you said, these guys need to be able to market themselves almost in a different way but you have to be able to win first you have to be able to get into some of these positions where you're fighting for the title or you're fighting against a other big name fighter all right and that's it for today thank you Cole. as always we'll probably be back next week um for another show and we'll do some special stuff down the road as well but uh, thank you man it was a fun time good show as always man yeah thanks for having me good stuff All right, and we'll see you all next week. Have a great rest of your – actually, have a great week because uh, we're we're in Sunday. This is, like, one of the first times we've ever done a show on Sunday. So have a great week, and we'll see you all uh, as the week progresses. Thank you, everybody.